Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Welcome back to There's No Business Like. Josh Benson here from Marion, Illinois, and I'm here with my friends, Danielle. Oh, hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. Brian. Brian Zelmer from Kutztown University. Kevin Maynard. Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. How many cities? Uh, Currently up to 19 (laughs) and counting. (laughs) And Katie. Hey, everyone. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan, uh, but originally from Muskegon, Michigan. There's a little bit of relevance to Katie talking about Muskegon, Michigan. Um, As we talked to Tracy Lowey uh, in the interview for today's episode, in our chats, we talk a little bit about Broadway. And so what was everybody's first experience with an actual Broadway show in New York? I went on a school trip and my first true Broadway show was Les Mis. And I love that show now, just disclaimer. But in my mind, I had such an imagination that I was disappointed with Broadway. I thought it was going to be more than it is. I'm amazed to to hear how you thought it was going to be more than it was with a spectacle (laughs) show like Les Mis. (laughs) I lived in my imagination as a kid. I had dyslexia. I was always getting into trouble because I wasn't doing my work and just daydreaming a lot. I was a huge daydreamer. And my daydreams about what Broadway was, because it was this big thing constantly, you know, brought up and advertised on TV. I grew up in the metro New York area. So, you know, it was on TV all the time for commercials and stuff. And just in my mind, I had built it up to this thing that wasn't realistic. You know, I think just I had a really incredible imagination as a kid and it didn't live up to that, <laughs> which is not a nice thing to say. I don't know if I want, I probably want to redo that. Nope. No, too late. It's an honest no I really like honest Yelp. Reviews. It is honest. Yeah. It is honest. <laughs> but you know, then I learned, I came down to real life and I, and I started going to other shows and I had, I grew an appreciation for it, especially when I started working on shows and seeing how much hard work goes into it. And now I'm amazed because I know how hard it is to accomplish what it is, what is accomplished. But, and I revisited Les Mis later and love, and I, it's one of my favorite shows now. Wow. My first Broadway show in New York city was seeing Bernadette Peters in Follies and it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) Glowing review. Look, I, Follies wasn't my first show that, that same year I did see, uh, I, I did see, Anything Goes with Sutton Foster and Joel Gray. And that completely blew my mind. But Follies was, for me, I, I don't know. Like, I enjoyed the second act. Like, I thought that was a lot of fun because it's that's when kind of the spectacle shows up and you see the, the big Broadway sets and, you know, some really cool stuff. But I just remember walking out of that sort of probably like Brian being like, I don't really get it. Um, <laughs> and then, and then like, and then that week saw a bunch of new, a bunch of other Broadway shows. And I was like, oh, okay, like that, just like that style was not for me. Yeah. My first Broadway experience was, I guess, kind of like Brian's. So <laughs> we're off to really nice. set the tone real high <laughs> on this was <laughs> yay Broadway. <laughs> So what I'm hearing is that everybody is a giant theater snob from the beginning. (laughs) 
Hey, at least we didn't say cats. <laughs> oh, well, Brian, thanks for bringing that up. So my first Broadway show was indeed Cats. So I grew up actually in Western Massachusetts and my mom um, booked three seats on one of these like senior citizen tour buses from where I lived in Pittsfield to New York City, which is like a three hour drive. So one summer um, I was maybe eight and my or eight or nine. My brother is a little younger than me. So she took us on one of these trips to New York City and the show choices were either Titanic, Jekyll and Hyde or Cats. So, of course, my mother chose Cats very wisely because I think the other two would have been disastrous <laughs> with a seven year old and a nine year old. Uh, so she took us to New York. It was the first time she'd ever been to New York City alone with two children under the age of 10. Um, and we went and saw Cats. And I so distinctly remember walking into the Winter Garden and this. I'm gigantic- sorry you had such a disappointing Broadway experience, too, Danielle. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> she wasn't done. Tell us about the Winter Garden, Katie. Yes. I just remember just because I'm going to let you guys down. (laughs) (laughs) So distinctly walking under this gigantic chandelier and coming into the theater and getting seated. And then the show starts and the cats literally come from everywhere. Right. It's like this incredible environmental theater piece. And I had been a dancer for a long time since I was three years old. And it was my first moment where I realized like, oh, you can sing dance and act all at the same time like this is a thing uh that you can do and it completely changed the trajectory of my life in the arts it was one of those aha moments at nine that was like oh i want to i want to do that i want to do more than just dance um and friends and family know that that is like a very important moment for me yeah that was my first broadway show and i feel very blessed that that was my first broadway experience honestly katie that is awesome that is really really cool uh yeah so the first time i went to new york was on like an early morning bus ride during college where it was like, I don't know, like 45 bucks, take the bus and then like buy your own tickets, buy your own lunch kind of deal. And then we came back on the same day because central Pennsylvania is not that far from New York on a charter bus. But I don't remember what I saw. I do remember the awesome desserts we had in New York. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But the first show that I remember seeing on Broadway was Chicago. And it was like, I don't know, a handful of years ago. Um, And it was okay. But the first Broadway style show that like is a Broadway show, I just didn't see it on Broadway that I saw was Phantom of the Opera in Canada. And I saw it in the Pantages Theater. And so, you know, that definitely made a mark and it made a mark on my parents, too, because we went back. I want to say two or three years later, again, Katie on a senior bus <laughs> that we got three tickets on um, and did like a little Toronto weekend. But we saw the closing night of Phantom of the Opera at the Pantages. I didn't see a show on Broadway in New York until much later in life. Actually, it was my second or third APAP before I actually saw a Broadway show in New York. But my first Broadway tour was uh, Miss Saigon and, you know, the helicopter comes down and his giant spectacle. And I was all in at that point. Uh, and then my actual first Broadway show was original cast of Come From Away. And oh, man. of course, that was phenomenal. Yeah, that's a special one. But we're going to jump in, and uh, I have interviewed Tracy Lowey um, of Miller Auditorium, and she has some great insights that she's going to share with us, and uh, we'll chat here in a bit. Tracy Lowey, director of Miller Auditorium in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Tracy, thanks for being with us today. 
I want to start with just simply, how did you get interested in the arts to begin with? Where did your path begin? Uh, my parents were huge, huge fans of uh, theater and performing arts and concerts. And so as long as I can remember, we've always attended theater, had season tickets to the community theater season every year, date night with my dad to go see the next musical that was coming up. So and then when I got into high school, I belonged to the girls club and every year they took a weekend trip to Chicago. It was a four hour drive from the little town of North Muskegon that I grew up in. And for 80 bucks, you got a bus ride into the big city and you got to stay overnight at the Palmer House Hotel, which swanky. And you got to see whatever Broadway tour happened to be playing uh, that night and dinner out. And then the next day you'd go to RJ Grunts for brunch. And then stop in Michigan City on the way back to go shopping for $80. You know, you got to see a huge Broadway show. So I got to see Camelot with Richard Harris. I got to see uh, a chorus line. I got to see Evita. And these are my first real uh, introduction to Broadway musicals. And I just fell in love with it and would sing along with everything, audition for all the plays in high school. So I was... And you're a good man, Charlie Brown, and a couple of um, Oklahoma and South Pacific. And then I went off to college. I majored in business because that's what you do, right? You major in business and you go into business. And <laughs> I volunteered at the theater because that's what I loved. I ended up changing my major, couldn't get through accounting, couldn't get through statistics, into communications with an emphasis in public relations. All of the projects we had to do in marketing and public relations, I would do them for the theatrical productions that we had at the college. Graduated from from college, didn't really know what I was going to do. I happened to be in Detroit uh, visiting my then boyfriend who was going to grad school at Wayne State University for acting. We were out seeing a show called Dream Girls. It was on tour and a friend of ours was the costume designer. And so we went to support him. I was reading Kevin's, that's my ex or my boyfriend at the time. I was reading his itinerary for grad school and it kept talking about promotions and he didn't know what it was, but we ran into people from Wayne State at this play. He introduced me. And it just so happened to be that a person who had accepted a fellowship for the promotions program had backed out and they had an opening. And she said, well, if you're interested, you should apply. This was July and grad school was starting in August. So I submitted my resume and they called me in for an interview and they called me two days later and said, well, we'd like to offer you the fellowship. So I was offered a full fellowship to go to grad school for arts marketing. It was a three-year program in Detroit. We pretty much ran the theater. We learned how to be a marketer. We learned how to do group sales. We learned how to house manage and how to do development. Uh, really what I like to say is I got my graduate degree in event planning because who else plans all everything but marketers, right? So we put on all the great big fundraising parties for the donors and everything. And it was fantastic. I found out that I could actually do what I'm good at, marketing and promotions, for an industry. I love the performing arts. I, I did summer internships at Cherry County Playhouse in Muskegon, got to meet great performers from all over the country and work on some fantastic shows. And I ended up getting hired at Western Michigan University in 1996 to be the director of arts management for the theater department. And I was there for three years and I really wasn't feeling satisfied being in educational theater at the time. Wanted to get back into professional theater and Miller Auditorium that is on the campus of Western was hiring a sales coordinator right up my alley. Group sales. I, I did that at grad school. It was the ticketing system that I had worked with in grad school and was working with over, you know, at the theater department. I got the job and that was 1999 and I've been at Miller Auditorium ever since. <laughs> That's awesome. 
you were raised in a household that really supported and loved and celebrated the arts. Everything. You know, for me, I, I like to tell a story. I love drag shows, drag queens. I love any drag show, bad, good, in between. I love it because my parents used to go to drag shows when I was little. And my mom would come home and talk about how beautiful the ladies were with all the, the huge, you know, really bold, outlandish makeup and wigs and gowns. And I was like, I can't wait till I'm old enough to go to the drag shows. <laughs> so they went to everything. You know, my parents just loved being entertained. Mm -hmm. um, but Broadway musicals really, for my mom, Broadway musicals were the huge thing. My dad loved them too. His favorite was West Side Story. But my dad was the concert guy. And so we went to a lot of concerts with my dad uh, from, from a young age. What's on. your first concert experience that sticks out in your mind with your dad? Barbara Mandrell and Lee Greenwood opened and he introduced God Bless the USA at that concert. Whoa. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. The, the song, the anthem, the song for Lee Greenwood, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he wrote that sitting on the back of a bus um, in transit between... That I did not well. know. Yeah. yeah. While he was on tour. That's a cool concert. That It was great. It was Elsie Walker Arena. And Muskegon had this great area right on the waterfront called Heritage Landing now, but uh, it's where the summer, summer celebration used to take place. Put in an amphitheater and started bringing in these really big acts to do. Over the course of two weeks, there would be a concert every single night. Sitting out on this beautiful lakefront backdrop listening to Bonnie Raitt, Three Dog Nights, Aretha Franklin, um, Hooting the Blowfish, Sticks. Who else have I seen? Gosh, the, the list just goes on and on and on. Just really great music. One of those things isn't quite like the others, but Hootie's still great. <laughs> well, there, there has just been so many musicians that have played there. And that was actually one of my, uh, that one in uh, Hall & Oates were some, two of my favorite concerts there. Bonnie Raitt was fun because my sister and I had gone down. We weren't planning on going to the concert. We were sitting outside of the concert area and a guy walked by and he was like, hey, I got extra tickets. My kids can't come. Do you want them? And we were like, sure, thanks. And so as we were walking into the concert, an old friend of mine, I had no idea, was still working at the box office. He's like, oh, my God, I didn't know you were coming here. And he slaps backstage passes on us. And so we're sitting on the stage, you know, 10 feet from Bonnie Raitt rocking out to her hits. Oh, my goodness. So obviously there's an incredible passion that was ignited yes. by your parents. Yeah. And, and I love that you found it, that you were like, I'm going to go to business school because that's what you do. <laughs> and then found your way back to it. Yes. And, and and for so many of us in the arts, that's that's the way it happens is mm -hmm. that it, it's in your blood and it's and it's and it's it's been ingrained into you so much that that you can't stay away from it. Um, I, right. I remember myself, I, I dropped out of school because I didn't think there was a career for me in the arts, um, in theater specifically. And I went to work as a mechanic, uh, for a few years. And, uh, the longer that I was a mechanic, Why can I not see that. Well, uh, the longer <laughs> that I worked as a mechanic at an auto body shop, uh, the more I started getting back into theater and started doing my, my backgrounds, lighting design, scene design. And I started taking one off gigs and going and designing a show and coming back. And, and I just couldn't stay away and, and finally got back into the industry itself. And, That's awesome. And just couldn't stay away from it because it, it's there and it's a passion and, and it, you feel almost lost and unfulfilled without it. The two ish years, give or take a few months, depending on how lucky you were to come back from the COVID uh, shutdown, 
did you feel completely lost for that? I felt lost. I didn't. Without direction because I was sitting at home. I, I you know, we, we were relegated to home. We weren't allowed. Our building was actually locked and record where we couldn't even potentially actually, get into it. I take that back. I was furloughed for two months. Okay. And during that furlough period, I went through depression. I went through, I mean, I, I, I was lucky enough to be at home with my, at that time, five-year-old daughter. Okay. And, and we shared some amazing time together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was rough for just a little while. And then um, I was lucky enough to, to come back and then uh, start doing outdoor shows and then jumped into our mural project and found a full new love within the arts. I love your mural project. Yeah, we were furloughed for 18 months. I was lost for a little while, and then artists started putting things up online. And I never really got into the um, the streaming concerts for the most part or, the, or watching performances that way. But um, I have a, a good friend, Eric Gutman. He actually was one of my students at the theater department when I when I worked there. But he went on to star in Jersey Boys, uh, both in the San Francisco sit-down and on Broadway. Performed sometimes now with Under the Street Lamp. But he did um, concerts at home in his music studio, and he would post them up on Facebook. And those were phenomenal to watch. And then you'd see where artists would go out on their balcony and invite other people out to play instruments. And the arts found a way. And mm-hmm. so uh, I found solace in that and, and, and knew that we would come back eventually. And the thing with coming back is that, and the thing that you don't get from that virtual experience from that is that, that communal feeling. Yeah. Cause there's, there's a magic that happens when you're able to enjoy things and experience emotions with other people. Right. And within reaction to other people that are also experiencing the same thing. We've all sat in an audience watching a show when the audience didn't seem to have good energy and then the performance, because I think, I think it's obvious artists feed off the energy of the audience and vice versa. And if that energy isn't there, mm-hmm. it affects the way you view the show too. Right. But that's the the thing that we lacked the most. And the thing that we lost during the pandemic was that communal nature of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in coming back from the pandemic, the, the thing that I've been so excited to see with more diversified programming, getting having kids get to see representation of themselves on the stage. Absolutely. But not not just that, because that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Seeing it is one thing. But seeing 600 to 1,000 people cheering on someone right. that looks like you on the stage and, and getting to be seen as a hero in seeing yourself on stage yes. is, a, is a true magic. Uh, that that were just and and that's something as simple as you know like a movie series where an audience is experiencing that together and you're getting to see right. that and and that's an amazing point that we're in right now is that people are getting to actually celebrate who they are. We just closed Anastasia at Miller last night, and I woke up this morning uh, at four a.m. <laughs> to head off to uh, our conference in Nashville here, and I had a an email from a patron who wanted nothing more than to thank us for bringing this tour because her daughter was able to see a show for the first time at age five. Anastasia happens to be played by a black actress. Her daughter is black. And so she said, my daughter was amazed to see this beautiful girl on stage who looked like her. 
and the memories that we built. I can't thank you enough. Please, please, please continue doing what you're doing. If nothing else, that just made my whole year. Mm-hmm. And we, we had the same experience with the Hipley Ballerinas at okay. our venue and a girl who in a rural area where our theater's at had been the only girl of color in her dance classes and, and almost felt excluded okay. because of it um, and had, had stopped doing dance. Hmm. And then getting to see Hipley Ballerinas with, with ladies of all color and all shapes and sizes all dancing together, um, we got an a Facebook post that we were tagged in where uh, the mother was celebrating us and that her daughter wanted to get back into dance classes and because she was inspired and <laughs> I would cry. It was amazing. And to be able to see that true impact on people is so rewarding. You know, you talked about the energy and coming, but having a live audience. The first show I saw when theater started reopening was at another theater in town and it was a sold out, performance I want to say it was nine to five they were doing nine to five I was sitting there and as the lights started going down all of a sudden I started getting choked up and crying and I turned to my friend I was like why am I crying and she was like because we haven't been here for so long she was right I still get a little emotional over it now I I I, I am an easy crier but um yeah just having that shared experience you know you can have a best friend at a concert for two hours that you've never met before and you'll never see him again, but your best buds while you're standing there rocking out to whoever happens to be wowing you. My husband and I went and saw Billy Joel this summer uh, in uh, at Notre Dame Stadium. And we were around, you know, thousands of strangers in our little group where in our seating area, we were all like arms around each other, wait, you know, back and forth singing along and crying at different parts because, you know, it's Billy Joel and his music's moving and just cheering it on. And it was the most phenomenal night. And you're briefly part of a community that you had never been part of before and will never be part of again, but it's mm-hmm. there and it's that communal thing. It's, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. So let's jump back to the business of making this magic happen. Okay. Obviously, it's incredibly important to to provide the arts to the communities in which we live. Absolutely. But... Whenever you're doing that, mm-hmm. how do you how do you curate that series to fulfill that goal? You have a Broadway series at Miller Auditorium. We do. Um, how do you how do you go about doing that in the first place? What's the what's the starting point for booking a series? Where do you see what it is and how do you do it? And then after you see what's out there, how do you craft your series and and see how it works? I always like to tell people it's a well choreographed dance (laughs) that happens to make it come together. So we start with, first of all, what's available, what's going on on the road next year. So right now I'm booking 23, 24. I have a list of all the shows that will be going out. We are a smaller market. They call us a tertiary market. So we don't usually get those first runs of Broadway that are required to run one week. We have, you know, 200,000 people that live in the greater Kalamazoo metropolitan area. We can't really support week-long runs of shows financially uh, unless it's a blockbuster. If it's a Hamilton, a Wicked, we can do multiple weeks because people come from all over for those. But on average, we're a split split week, and we tend to do Friday night, Saturday matinee, Saturday night shows currently. So you have to have, then you, you cut down your pool by which shows are going out doing splits. Do you see these shows beforehand? 
I try to see as many Broadway shows as I possibly can. I go to the Broadway League Conference in New York every spring. I see about six to eight shows, depending how long I'm there for and how many shows I can fit in the schedule. Exactly what is the Broadway League Conference? Sure. So the Broadway League is an entity in New York that exists to support Broadway in New York and Broadway on the road. It has a few thousand members nationwide of theaters just like ours that present Broadway. They work with um, the union negotiations for contracts for the actors union, the stagehand unions, the musicians union. They work with government entities to try and make sure that regulations on labor and how things happen across the country with, with the touring goes. I mean, even down to the, you know, the, the people that drive the trucks of the set, you know, between for the shows on, on the road, making sure that they have the sleep that they need and aren't overworked between. And then they provide support and data and all kinds of professional development opportunities. And every spring they host what they call the road conference. And it's when everybody who does this for a business is invited to come to New York for the week. The producers of the shows provide free tickets for attendees to see the shows. You're given a list of what shows will be available and you mark your your favorites, you know, which ones you really want to see. And they do their best to get you at least a couple of your top choices. And in between all of that, they have we have these really great interactive sessions where people come and talk about the latest trends, topics, challenges, you know, when unfortunately bad things started happening at crowded places, they brought in experts on safety and how to increase safety with your venue and uh, without making it scary for your patrons. All of a sudden, maybe um, there's a latest marketing trend, you know, as for as long as I've been in the business, I started do, at Miller Auditorium in 1999. So I've been going to New York every year for this since then. Social media didn't exist back then. <laughs> you know, your marketing, you, you bought television and radio and print and outdoor and the show sold. Well, radio started slowly disappearing a little bit as streaming music and things like Sirius, you know, XM or Spotify Pandora came out or people's MP3 players in their cars. And so maybe radio didn't really work. And newspapers, unfortunately, be started becoming a dying uh, thing and people didn't have print. And so changes in that type of thing and, and you learn best practices, get ideas about how to do education outreach. It's just a really great conference. It's I feel rejuvenated. Sometimes you kind of feel like you get stuck in a rut and then you go to this conference and you're amongst your peers and it's all people just like you who love doing what we do. We exchange ideas and we steal ideas from each other. And, you know, I, I've presented at the conference a couple different times on things that we've done. And it's just really great to be amongst uh, other people in the industry and learn from them and help teach them things that you're doing that they may not have thought of. And then as a bonus, they have these creative conversations with the cast and crew of each of the shows. So you get an inside look as to how it was developed. They're usually moderated and they last about a half an hour. And you learn about how the show came to be, insight about the stars who are in the show. And then we usually have cocktail parties sponsored by the, which is kind of a nice little perk. And you go see these shows and then you you know what it is. You know what people are talking about. It, it'd be really hard to sell a show if you haven't seen it or have an idea about what it's, you know, what it's all about. Luckily, you know, I live within a couple hours of Wharton Center in Lansing, Michigan and Chicago that has, you know, three different theaters that, that Broadway comes through. And 
um, Grand Rapids is just 40 minutes north with DeVos. They have Broadway and Grand Rapids. So Detroit's two hours away and they have three Broadway houses. So it's easy to, to go and see shows at all of these places as well and get an idea about what we might want to bring. I like to survey my, my patrons. Here's shows that are going out. Can't guarantee any, sing, any single one of them, but what's high on your list of what you'd like to see? We try to bring at least one of those if we're able to. And you have to start having conversations with the shows. We all work with agents that represent the various shows and they have routing. So you've got, imagine you've got how many hundreds or thousands of theaters across the country all vying for shows and you've got 26 weeks to do it in. You can't take a show from Seattle, Washington to Kalamazoo, Michigan to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to Denver, Colorado. You have to route it properly. And so it's looking at their calendar and your calendar and trying to hold dates that work well. So quite often I'm on the phone with an agent and we both have our calendars open and let's say we're talking about Lion King. And they're like, okay, you know, I've got a really great routed date. It's going through Madison, Wisconsin, November 1st through the 15th. What is your November 17th through whatever look like? And I look at my calendar. If I've got it open, pencil it in. And you have these conversations with everybody. Like right now, I think I have 10 different holds for various Broadway shows for next year. And I know I'm going to go down to four. And it may not be any of the shows I'm currently holding. Mm -hmm. That's the crazy thing. You can hold these. And then something happens with the tour where they had to move the week that you had, and they're going to be out on the West Coast instead. So they only have this time period in January to look at, but I don't have January anymore because I already have a Broadway show held there that is pretty firmed up. So again, it's just really working hard to know what will sell in your market, what's available, and does it match your calendar? And, and then with a little bit of what do my people want to see sprinkled in there? Absolutely. Yeah. So after you've put that season together, mm -hmm. it goes on sale, marketing goes out. Then you guys also do one off like concert dates and Absolutely. spectacle events and other single night events mm -hmm. that are not part of Broadway series. What's the difference in curating that those shows versus curating your Broadway? It's not a whole lot different um, other than I'm only booking it for one night. So the beauty of that is, and they don't take as much to load in. So a Broadway show is really huge. Usually, you know, it's multiple trucks coming. It takes at least a full day. The really big shows take a few days to get loaded in. And that's why they want to sit there for two weeks because it's a lot to put in and a lot to put out and make it too expensive, right? The one-offs tend to be one or two trucks maybe. You can get them in in a few hours. Because of that, you have more flexibility like, okay, yeah, it, I could go on this date, but two days later I could also put it there. And that makes sense too because, oh, they can go to Detroit and then come back to Kalamazoo before they go down to Indianapolis. We do anywhere from 15 to 20 one-off shows in addition to our four to five Broadway shows. I try to start my season with having a solid 13 of those booked. And I'm talking to, to those agents right now too. And, and we're talking about four the upcoming season for 23-24. And I'll still add a show in right now for 22-23. Um, I don't mind adding a show in for the spring or, you know, late winter, early spring, uh, because I've got the availability. If it's the right show, go ahead and add it. it. It doesn't need to be in the brochure if it's the right show. You can just announce to your people, put it out there on priority sale to your donors and your subscribers, and then open up to general public, and, and you'll have plenty of time to sell it. 
so single shows can be a little bit easier. And, and again, I'm holding those now, even though I don't have my Broadway solidified because those usually you hold a couple different dates and you just start negotiating with the agent once you get your Broadway firmed up to, to make those work. So because Broadway is long, a little bit longer engagements and mm-hmm. kind of at the heart of what you do for your subscribers, right? that's first. And then you fill in um, and then you take one offs and pop ups as they come as through. they come up. Absolutely. And you, it's kind of hard to, to book a concert. Like right now, if I'm securing my 22, 20 or my 23, 24 season, it'd be really hard to, to know that, you know, I might be able to book Nora Jones or John Mellencamp or Panic at the Disco because they don't know that they're going to be touring or when they might be touring. Those are they pop up and a promoter might call you or an agent might call you and say, hey, we're doing a six week tour and I've got this great hole, you know, between Detroit and Chicago and it'd work perfectly if you have this date available. That's the, the thing that you add at the last minute. You're not going to get those on your brochure. But there's obviously a, a ton of value in those for your community and for your patrons. Absolutely. Um, getting to see those premier names that that they wouldn't get to otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah, and just I'm sure you've done the the data too for you. The arts are so vital to the communities they serve. The number of people that we have coming through to see shows and the shows that we have coming through just our tours alone equate to 2,500 hotel room nights a year. That's just the, the artists coming and staying. That's not the people who might come and stay overnight. When we had Phantom of the Opera the first time in 2006, we had our sales were from 36 different states and nine provinces in Canada. So people were definitely coming and spending the night. They weren't mm-hmm. <laughs> driving in for a show and leaving. And if you think about... And even if people are local... They're making an evening out of it most of the time. Absolutely. They're going to dinner, they're having drinks afterwards, and, and there's a true economic impact and, and economic $11 million dollars a year is the economic yeah. impact of, of Miller Auditorium in Kalamazoo. $11 million on average annually is the economic impact. Because that's, one, you've got the performers staying in the hotels, they're doing their laundry at our laundromats, they're shopping for clothing toiletries and whatnot at our stores. They're dining out in our restaurants because they're living out of a hotel. Kalamazoo is their home for the time that they're there. Phantom of the Opera ran for four weeks. You know, those artists were living, they were living in Kalamazoo for those four weeks. And then the people, as you said, they're buying gas, they're paying babysitters, they're going out to eat. Maybe they're buying a new outfit. They're buying flowers for their wife, making a special night. The things that you don't think of, we have our restaurants. If we have a show at Miller Auditorium, the restaurants don't even need to know that they're, if they're packed on a, any given night, they assume it's because we have a show at Miller because they're always packed when we have a show. Especially in mid-sized communities, mm-hmm. that's so vital. That economic driver needs to be there from a tourism standpoint. Absolutely. And, and people underrate the arts in that way so mm-hmm. often um, that they don't view the arts themselves as an economic anchor for a community. Right. We're lucky enough with the the mayor that's in our community that whenever he took office, he said, we're going to revitalize the historic downtown and we're going to do it through the arts. That's amazing. And we're going to sell tickets to shows and get foot traffic. That foot traffic will lead to people, will lead to businesses downtown. And we'll supply those businesses with the foot traffic that they mm-hmm. need. 
and it's all starting to work. Um, the entire downtown square is completely under renovation right now. All the buildings by private owners who are putting businesses in there and already have leases in places for occupants. And we are right on that doorstep of a thriving historic downtown area in a rural community, which hasn't been there for 20 years. That's fantastic. But it's all because of that foresight that the Mm -hmm. arts can be the center and the heart and the driver of making that happen. Right. What would you say is your favorite thing, the thing that brings the most value to you doing what you do with Miller Auditorium with the community? You know, when I'm, my office is right off of stage left. Literally across the door from my office is a little area where one of the speakers are hidden behind the wall. Sound checks are amazing. You're sitting in your office and you hear Bobby McFerrin warming up. You know, who gets to do that? We get to do that, right? Walking in, one of the things I decided to start sharing was a little bit more of behind the scenes because I love what, and I found out that my patrons love being given that glimpse behind the curtain. And so as I walk across the stage, when they first start loading in Anastasia on Friday, clicked a picture of just a couple of boxes and some stagehands. And then I walked out of the office to go up front for a meeting and the trusses were up. So I clicked another picture. Came back an hour later from that meeting. The floor was laid and some of the scenery pieces had been flown in and clicked that picture. And then as I walked through on my way out to an appointment from that side angle where the box is in like what literally looks like a tangled mess of wire, (laughs) but it somehow is organized in someone's brain and it works well, had that picture. And I went ahead and I just posted them, you know, on our social media. What does it take to get a big Broadway show up? Well, here's a look. Uh, You know, it's fun to be here on load-in days. And I get excited on load-in days because, you know, the whole theater is a buzz. We've got the IATSE crew, that's the stagehands, you know, coming in to to help with the load-in. And the company manager, the, the tour manager that runs the technical side of that, the TD for the show, he's got this well mapped out thing and where every single piece goes and people who have never worked on the show are showing up and they're able to put this huge set piece together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, so to speak. And then all of a sudden you've got this, the people coming in that night and they're dressed up and they're excited and they're in the concessions and they're talking and smiling. They can't wait to go in. And when they're walking out the reactions as I'm thanking them for coming and have, you know, have a good night and whatever care they walked in with, Earlier that night, they're walking out a lighter, happier person because they forgot the real world for a few minutes, were lost in the story that we gave them. And it's just absolutely magic. And I could be in a bad mood for one reason or another, but by the time I'm out of there that night, I'm just ecstatic as well. Everything you've told me is all transformations happening. Yeah. It's hearing the sound check and hearing... Bobby McFerrin start and then hearing it turn into the songs and the music. Mm-hmm. It's seeing that set go up and, and being a part of it and watching your theater transformed into it and then seeing your patrons transformed from watching the show. Absolutely. And it's all yes. that energy and transformation mm-hmm. that's really at the root of all of it. You just made a perfect point <laughs> that I never even really thought of before, but you're absolutely correct. It's exactly what it is. I mean, you just told me all of that. I was just putting the pieces yeah. together. One thing that we like to do is kind of go back in time a little bit. Okay. I'm going to take you back to that moment when you realized that promoting the arts is a career path. And what advice would you give yourself 
going in at that point? Go for it. Just go for it. I think so many, I've had the privilege when I was a grad student, when my position was group sales, we sold mostly group sale tickets to high schools because it was, the Hillbury did rotating repertoire and it was Moliere and Shakespeare. And it was a lot of, there was usually one contemporary play done each year. Like we did private lives. We did some of them are escaping me, but mostly they were the classics. And so we sold a lot of group matinee, Thursday matinee tickets to high school drama groups to come out. Well, we were noticing they were getting really restless. They weren't really paying attention to the show, so to speak. And so I said, why don't we go out and prepare students for the educational experience they're about to come and see? And so I would go out and do study guides with them and prepare them to see Shakespeare. A lot of people are like, well, we can't understand anything, you know, thou art thou, you know. And I was like, it's really not that hard to understand if you think about it. And so we started breaking it down. Oh, my gosh, the change in the audiences just by doing that one little thing. That being said, a lot of them still thought when, when you talk to students about the arts and, and a career in the arts, all they think about is being on stage, being that star, being the performer, being the person in the spotlight. And some of them might even be like, I don't have any kind of talent. I love the arts, but my gosh, I'm not talented. Well, everybody has a talent first and foremost, but I love showing them that they can work in the arts because 90% of the jobs have nothing to do with being on stage. You can be a technician, you can run the fly rail, you can be the sound engineer, you can be a light designer, you can be a costume designer, you can be a wig master, you can be a box office manager, you can be a house manager, you can be a marketing director, you can be a business manager. You, there are so many careers in the arts and they're all vital and every single one of them is needed to make it happen. Learning that I could do what I do was such an aha moment and such a changing, defining moment in my life. Because I, you know, I don't know about your parents, but we come from a generation of you work, you work hard, you show up every day. It doesn't matter if you don't feel good, you go into work, you're dedicated to your job. Not that my parents didn't like their work, but they weren't fulfilled by their work. Their work was a means to an end. They got the money to live. They got money so they could do things that they enjoyed doing outside of work. It's really rare for me not to look forward to getting up and going to work. I love what I do. I love meeting new people. Every day something different is happening in my space. And every day I have an opportunity to collaborate with my colleagues to come up with new ways to promote and market, new ways to reach out and serve our community. Because I think it's important not just, yeah, we have to make money, right? We have to sell, we have to break even, we have to have... Yeah, there's a business to it. There's a business to it. But we can do so much more. And I think it's important that we that we serve the communities that we are in as well. Not everyone has the money to afford tickets to see shows. I know right now the cost of Broadway has really gone up to where some people feel it's almost elitist and, and they, they, they're left out. And nobody wants to feel left out. So we started the Family First program. And we have sponsors and donors that give money and we purchase tickets for low-income families. And it's important that it's a family unit. It's not just for kids because as a family unit, to be able to come and experience that together, to be able to have that memory together, to be able to go home and talk about it together, 
is really important. So we do those types of things. Um, we try to support other nonprofits in our community. And I just feel so blessed and privileged that I get to do that every day. Mm-hmm. Well, you completely blew my last question out of the water, which is what, what is your favorite thing about the industry today? And, <laughs> and I think it's all of that. I, and I agree. I think we're all blessed to be able to be part of something like that, despite whatever logistical challenges we have in front of us or especially these days, staffing challenges. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're part of this magical thing that transforms people's lives and transforms people's experience and, and gives people hope. Yeah, absolutely. I think historically people have always t- turned to the arts in all times, times of happiness, times of profitability, pr- times of excellence, but more than ever in times of strife because it's a way to maybe playwrights, musicians, artists have always used their art to get out whatever feelings are inside by what turmoil or strife might be happening. Sometimes when things seem bad outside, sitting in a theater and seeing something that's uplifting and happy and joyful can make what's going on outside not so bad. Through history, we've always turned to the performing arts. It's magical. It's hard. It, it's If somebody hasn't ever experienced them before, it's hard to make them understand. And so I always like inviting those people mm-hmm. to come and try it out because I, I they'll be transformed as well. Tracy, thank you for sitting down and hanging out with us for a little bit, imparting some of your knowledge and wisdom to us and, and kind of giving us that, that look into what booking Broadway and, and sure. all of that really means. Thanks well, this so much. has definitely been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Josh, I really appreciate the conversation you had with Tracy because you basically hit like my favorite things about the arts, like my highlights. Like I, the reason I love doing what I do here at Quad City Arts is, you know, focusing on that representation aspect and really just highlighting and advocating for the arts based on its economic impact. I mean, we can talk all day about the impact that the arts have on an individual, um, but for some people in a community, the the language they speak is money and to be able to talk about that economic impact. I mean, you know, Tracy was talking about how, you know, they just assume that if the restaurants are full, there's something happening at the Miller Auditorium. I will never forget when I was working at the Orpheum Theater our calendar, we were having some issues for a while trying to get our calendar on our website to sync. And uh, every time it went down, we got a call from this local restaurant and like talking with with the owner there. He was like, yeah, he's like, I use your calendar to know how and when to buy food because like that's how much I'm going to need. Because if there's something happening at your theater, we're going to be packed. Um, and based on that, I mean, he was a big advocate for the arts. Um, so, I mean, it's just, I, I love those conversations because it just talks about the, you know, the massive impact that the arts have aside from, you know, a, a good few hours in a theater. Kevin, I totally uh, agree with you that sometimes we have to talk numbers, right? The economic impact is important um, in a variety of ways in what we do. So of course, I pulled up uh, economic impact numbers for the state of Michigan. Tracy mentioned the number 11 million as the estimated economic impact of the Miller in the greater Kalamazoo area. And so these numbers are from 2017, one of the last studies that was done pre-pandemic. But Michigan's in particular, Michigan's arts and culture sector represents 2.8% of the state's GDP. That's 121,332 jobs. Um, and uh, the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis reports that the arts and culture sector contributes $13.9 billion to Michigan's economy. Um, like 
that's just an insane number. And that is more than tr- the transportation sector. And that is more than the utility sector, um, actually. And uh, compensation numbers for um, arts and culture organizations was $7.6 billion. That's how much people got paid to work in the arts and culture sector in, tw- in 2017. So those numbers really aren't anything to sniff at, right? Um, and so I think it's important for us to think about that. And I know that new studies are being done. And so if you, your organization, um, can be a part of that, submit data to that, that helps us make the case at a state and a national level for the importance of state funding, national funding, local funding, grants, you know, for foundations, that sort of thing. Like we need those numbers. We need that data. Katie, can you give us the reference? Uh, and the citation for where you got that information, the study name? Yeah, this is uh, numbers compiled by Americans for the Arts Action Fund. Um, and we can maybe put on our website or put it in the show notes. Americans for the Arts have numbers like this for every state that you can look up on their website. Yeah, we can link to that in the show notes. And it's worth saying that they are redoing that study right now. So I think in the next, within the next year, they'll actually be putting out what those numbers are, you know, uh, post-pandemic. I just like the way though that Tracy like talked about the job of being a presenter. She hit all of the reasons I think that I fell in love with presenting and wanting to be in the area of the arts that's not producing. Um, You know, because I think whenever you like go into the arts or theater, like I don't know if you get pushed into it or it's just like what you know is creating a show and and doing it. But like the experience of coming in, you know, seeing the boxes, seeing a couple of technicians that don't know how to set their show up, coming back a little while later and like, okay, you got a floor, like this is looking a little different. Come back a little bit later and, you know, there's something else. And, you know, there's also, I love not being part of that. (laughs) (laughs) Not a technician. They actively like try to get me to not touch the things. But like by the end of the day, seeing the audience just being like, thank you for bringing this. I really love that she explained putting a season together, even though not all of the shows she does is in her season, as you you brought up, which is was cool to learn about too. But as someone who's done seasons in multiple venues, my favorite part, it, it is that weird puzzle. It's almost like working on a Rubik's Cube and you're like, oh good, I got the blue side, but now I got to try to get this side and oh no, the blue side went away. And it's like constantly evolving. And then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, it seems to click and everything is in place. And I love that feeling when it just like, it surprises you every time. Like, oh my God, this is it. This is the season. It's so awesome. It's such a magical experience. Yeah. Listening to her talk about that, like now that I'm doing less on the the programming side, like I remember like that's, that's the dance that I miss. I miss doing that, you know, figuring out like, how do you fit this in? How do you go? Oh yeah, we've already got this in this time. So we need to balance this out. And you know, it's that, that cool dance of like, we need things that will fit in the series, but also fits our community. Also, a lot of people think, oh, we were working on this. What happened to it? It's it's not always our decision. As she mentioned, sometimes the tour changes. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times it's something happens from the other side. And again, my favorite is just when it all falls into place and it's done. It's like, wow. And then you step back and look at it and you're like, that is so cool. That's not what I thought it was going to be when I was starting this season, but it's so much better than I imagined every time. I really enjoyed her talking about getting into the admin side and that it was through almost random discovery that uh, the the gentleman that was her partner at the time was in a master's program for performance and he had to take uh, certain classes and and she was like what are those and they were in just trying to find out what those are she learned what arts admin was and then a spot opened up and immediately got into the program I thought that was really cool Tracy and I actually grew up in the same area so 
I'm originally from the East Coast, but moved to Muskegon, North Muskegon, Michigan, actually when I was 11. And um, the experiences she was talking about, Summer Celebration and Cherry County Playhouse are something Tracy and I have in common because I grew up going to both of those festivals. So Summer Celebration at Heritage Landing, which is right on Muskegon Lake, this incredible outdoor venue with food and a carnival. And like that was the cool place to hang out when you were a teenager for those 10 days. Um, And I'll have to fact check this with Tracy, but I think my first summer celebration concert was that same Bonnie Raitt concert that she talks about in your interview, Josh. Uh, I was really young, but it was an amazing experience. First time I ever saw her. Um, I'm super influential and I think like was a huge economic driver in Muskegon in the summertime um, and really brought some incredible acts. Like I remember seeing Train, Ray Charles on the 4th of July, Gavin DeGraw. Oh my gosh, so many different people. But then Cherry County Playhouse, which Started in Traverse City, Michigan. There's a whole story. Eventually, it migrated down to Muskegon um, at the beautiful Frohenthal Performing Arts Center there, uh, this beautiful historic theater. But they would do a run of shows in the summer with huge television and Broadway stars coming in and performing um, in musicals on stage in Muskegon. <laughs> Muskegon is, you guys, <laughs> over here. <laughs> Hand map time. It's over here. Um, oh, that's close to um, Xavier. Yes. I'm about an hour and a half. Or it's an hour and a half from I'm Xavier. amazed that you remember <laughs> Xavier's hand see. placement. Well, because he, he was on the pinky. <laughs> um, but Cherry County Playhouse was an incredible experience. And again, like so influential in my young life and the young lives of many of my peers. And there were young people who went to Mona Shores High School and other high schools in the region that performed had the opportunity to perform with these big Broadway television movie stars in these shows that went on to Broadway themselves. Uh, so that's, and it was an incredible resource at the time. And there's something to be said for like having those very special experiences when you're young um, and how influential they can be. I love the overlaying things between all the Michigan stuff with Katie and, and Tracy. But then, Josh, when you talked about uh, Lee Greenwood, and I remember you have another podcast, State of the Arts. State of the Arts, Southern Illinois. And Lee Greenwood was a guest on on that podcast yeah, as well. Yeah, that was a great episode, too. I encourage people to listen to that. Which is where that little snippet of where he wrote that song came from was that podcast. Josh, I thought your observation of describing Tracy's, like the way she described everything and you you came to the conclusion that it was about transformation, that it all was about the transformation. And and I'm looking back and I'm like, huh, I think I think that's part true for me too. I love seeing that transformation and seeing the the beginning, the roughness that happens in the beginning and the the little stuff that you have and and then, you know, all the way to the final product where you have the audience and I just, I think that's a really cool thing. And I think that's, that's true of almost any good art form is that it is transformational, which is once you've been part of that transformational process, it stays with you after that. And that's something that's so important about theater and visual arts in general. And and why some people are so attached to certain songs because it speaks to them in a way that aligns with their transformational experiences of their own. She talked about both ways, though, as as being the per, the arts administrator and watching it, you know, the load in. She talked about the story of, of the load in from start to finish and that transformation, but also as an audience member. And she talked about how she cried at Billy Joel. And that reminded me like a really impactful time when I went to see Dance Theater of Harlem at City Center in New York City. And just one piece, it was 
this bitter earth. Dinah Washington was singing it. And halfway through the song, like I was welling up with tears. And by the end, I was just bawling. And it's rare to have that kind of impactful experience. But, you know, as, as a, a male that grew up in this toxic environment, like telling me I'm not allowed to cry in front of other people, you know, I, I often do, I'm a crier. I cry a lot at movies, even commercials get me teared up and, you know, I'll hide it and not show anybody. And, but this time at this dance theater of Harlem show, I was just so moved. I didn't care. I even stood up at the end. I was one of the few people that stood up after the piece and was just applauding as the river was coming down my eyes because I was just so moved by that. And, um, and, and I love when art can have that kind of power on somebody. I was a little bit of a crier, like at emotional things. And then after having a daughter, I cry all the time. And my daughter thinks it's hilarious at this point because we'll be watching a movie of some sort. And she'll be like laying across my lap and she'll look up at me and like, are you crying again? <laughs> yes. Well, Katie and Tracy, thank you both for illuminating us to how magical of an arts landscape Michigan truly is in the shape of that hand. Um, thank you all for joining us and listening today. Catch us again soon. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Life. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslife.com. Do I sound out bus i miss every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. Katie, talk about Michigan. I we skipped we skipped my fun facts, so we can't go back to economic impact. Why not? No, we can. Why not? It's our Absolutely. podcast. It's our yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's our podcast. <laughs> Talk Michigan to me. <laughs> is, is Kalamazoo down here in the palm? Kalamazoo. Okay. So you guys, so if you take your left hand geography lesson, listeners, take your left hand, put the back of it towards your face. So your thumb is sticking out to the right. <laughs> Kalamazoo uh, is like, if you go from like the base of your pinky, like where your pinky finger and your ring finger meet and then go down just about maybe an inch. That's where Kalamazoo is. Yeah. <laughs> very important yeah this is serious stuff you were saying about economic impact 